Good morning and good afternoon. I'd like to speak a little bit about trust and how we cultivate trust in the practice. I tend to like to use the word faith, but I know faith has a lot of um, mixed um, meanings for people. So trust is maybe, maybe a better word. When we come to practice, we're generally coming from um, a society, from a society in which the values that we place in practice aren't necessarily as strong in the culture that we've come from. And so to, to come from, uh, from, from a society or from a cultural tradition that doesn't necessarily hold the same values it's a little bit tricky, that transition is a little bit tricky. And we usually, I think, come because we, we feel that there is something lacking. There has been something lacking and we're looking, looking for something that uh, maybe feels more right. So when we first come to practice, to Zen practice, we have to have a little leap of faith, just a little bit of trust in something, uh, even if we're not sure. We kind of need that. And I think it happens through a number of different avenues. Maybe we've met someone and there's something about them that we value. And we think, hmm something about them that I appreciate. I'm going to trust that what they're doing might be valuable for me as well. We might have read something. We might be familiar maybe with some aspects of Asian culture that we respect and value. But however we get there, when we first come to practice, a little bit of just Faith is needed, a little bit of trust is needed just to begin. So it's a little risk that we take. Once we're, once we're started practice, then we don't actually need to take too many risks. Once we're here and once we begin, then we can begin this process of verification where we verify for ourselves teachings, the teachers, the practices, we get to verify that through our own experience. And because I think the teachings are um, describing reality, then it's something that we can verify. We're not being asked to believe something that cannot be verified. 
So that process of verification, I remember for myself, the process of verification was I started to notice that my own uh, inner world became a little more settled. My interior world, my thinking world, that also then translated into how I functioned in the world, seemed to get a little more steady. You could even say a little less neurotic. Whatever my habits and tendencies from my childhood, they, got, they were not as loud. They quietened down. And I noticed that. I did notice that that's what was happening. It was kind of a pleasant surprise. Just as some simple examples is that I used to have a fairly strong fear of being late, that somehow something terrible would happen, completely irrational. Really nothing terrible is going to happen. But the fear was there and the fear was loud. And that quietened down, it really quietened down. It was such a relief to not have sort of hyperventilating, fluttering breathing at even the thought of being late for something or getting lost, making a mistake on a freeway, for example. At one point, making a mistake on a freeway and missing an exit or taking a wrong exit would have caused great distress. And now it just doesn't bother me at all, really. But it, it took a while to move from one to the other. And so early in practice, those first few years, just some simple examples that I, I started to see the positive effect on my internal world. So that's what happens for us in practice. We begin to notice that it seems to work. And each of us can explain it a little differently. One way to explain it is in practice we're learning to not identify with us, as ourselves as a separate concrete entity. We're learning to relax with that, not see ourselves that way, and then fear tends to subside. Fear, anger, doubt, they seem to subside when we don't identify so strongly with ourselves and instead tend to broaden our identification more broadly with, with the world. Less selfing going on. So we, we get to practice seeing the effect of that and then we develop trust in the teachings. And sometimes if you've been in a Sangha, you also see that in other people, which is a really lovely experience to see in other people how they seem to be uh, more relaxed, um, more attentive, happier, more capable, you know, less nervous to do things. We get to witness that in others, and that's a beautiful thing too. Over the years to see people come into practice, you know, sometimes almost limping in, <laughs> limping in, <laughs> trying to find some, you know, some refuge, and then we watch over the years. They blossom, they become confident and calm. So that deepens our trust, just witnessing that in, in our fellow Sangha members.
Another place that our trust starts to deepen is watching how uh, our teachers respond to things. Just watching how they respond to the spontaneous things that happen uh, in a zendo and in a community. And um, really respecting the way that they respond to things. Often if something goes just a little bit wrong, the way a teacher will just very graciously take the blame. It's very graciously, no big deal. Oh, so sorry. That must have been my fault. Or how um, compassionately but calmly they respond to somebody in need. Or how they don't complain. You might, you know, I might have noticed with the teacher, gosh, they're giving a Dharma talk every day. They're doing lots of Dokusan. They're turning up for every period of Zazen. They get up extra early. They end up going to bed much later than everybody else. And they're showing no signs of complaint about that. <laughs> they're just graciously continuing on. You know? So just watching them, you get to see this is the this is the effect that practice can have. And that deepens the trust in the teachings and in the practice itself. In the practice itself, sitting zazen, it really has taken me many years, and it keeps on deepening my trust in this practice of zazen. It is so simple, and yet it seems to have this incredible capacity to um, awaken in us an awareness of the present moment, just the purity of the present moment. So our trust in Zazen deepens over time. We keep doing it, keep returning to it. Or it could be tempting to, to do lots of other things. It could be tempting to read a lot, write a lot, talk a lot about practice. But all the teachers that I've respected over the years what do they primarily do? They do zazen. So we can trust the trust the zazen, then it makes it actually easier for us to do it each day because it can be a bit tempting to not do it. There's lots of other things that are calling out to us, uh, and there's not a lot of support outside of our Sangha life for doing it. But it gets easier to, to discipline ourselves for that little moment of resistance that often we have. We can push through that moment of resistance more easily because we have this trust, we have this faith that this is worthwhile. And as well as faith in the actual practice of zazen, sitting on a cushion on our zabutons each day, 
also cultivating faith in the benefit of awareness itself. The benefit of being aware, of, of being aware of what our eyes are seeing, what our ears are hearing, what our body is feeling. To trust that actually the process of awareness and being aware of awareness is incredibly wholesome. And in some ways it's obvious that it's wholesome because now is the only thing that exists, like now is happening, whereas the past and the future are not happening, they're ideas, they're non-existent. But in our minds we're often uh, imagining the past and imagining the future. But all reality is happening is in the present. Everything is happening in the present. Uh, and being aware of the present means that we're being actively being, consciously being, intentionally being here with it. It's the only place that has power. No other place has power but now. So our faith in that, our trust in awareness and awareness of awareness, our trust in that deepens. This is where the power lies. Not somewhere else. There is no somewhere else. <laughs> but in no imaginary somewhere else. We have lots of stories. Um, one story that we have is of Ananda, Buddha's disciple, who uh, was his attendant for 20 years. And there's many different stories about Ananda, but, but one of the stories is that he was very a very bright man, very intelligent, with... Uh, almost a photographic memory, and he could recite the Buddha's teachings to people. So it was an enormous service that he could retain and recite the Buddha's teachings so more and more people could hear it. Hear it. Uh, but that that intellect also was a little bit of a barrier to his awakening, to his waking up. And uh, Mahakasyapa awoke, another one of Buddha's disciples at the... The Buddha raised a flower and Mahakasyapa smiled and the, the Dharma eye, the treasury, true treasury of the Dharma eye woke up in him and then Ananda became his attendant for another, I think it's 15 years or maybe another 20 years, became his attendant. And that's a story to help us relax about time frames that uh, we can trust in the teachings, we can trust in the practice, and we can trust our teachers, and we don't need to worry about how long things take. That for Ananda, it took a long time. None of the time was wasted. The 
whole time he was practicing, he was uh, being of benefit to both himself and the world. But it took a while for him to really fully wake up to the teaching so they were completely penetrated to his marrow right through his whole body and that's okay it's okay that it happens that way so i'm just going to read um, ananda's awakening story from the record of transmission of the light the second patriarch was the venerable ananda he asked the venerable Kasyapa, Elder brother, Elder Dharma brother, did the world honor one, did the world honored one transmit anything else to you besides the gold brocade robe? Kasyapa called Ananda. And Ananda replied, and Kasyapa said, Knock down the flagpole in the front of the gate. Ananda was greatly awakened. I think of Ananda here as very open and receptive, and he asks this question, did the world-ordered one transmit anything else to you besides the gold brocade robe? And Kasyapa just says, Ananda, it doesn't say what Ananda replied, but I always imagine that he just replied, yes. And then just at that moment, that very ripe moment, Kasyapa says, knock down the flagpole in front of the gate. Don't let there be any barrier between you, your idea of yourself, and this. So for some people, they can come into practice quite quickly, be inspired very quickly, and have uh, developed trust very quickly, and maybe wake up quite quickly. And that's great, and that's fine. And we can be, we can celebrate that. And for other people, it takes more time. And we can celebrate that too. It's often cautioned that waking up too fast is sometimes a problem because it maybe isn't quite so deep. And then the, it can be that a little bit of a complacency sets in. And whereas someone else who maybe struggles for longer and has to have trust for a lot longer, the depth of their practice, the depth of their realization is sometimes deeper. And another factor, I think, in the developing of trust is that some of us find trust a little easier than other people. For some people, you could say, from 
the causes and conditions of their life maybe had parents who were trustworthy, had teachers at school who were trustworthy, maybe even with, were within their community, felt they were in a fairly safe community, where their needs were more or less cared for, their care caregivers, even in terms of like government, was relatively trustworthy. And so they can come to practice with uh, an open receptivity because they've had good experiences of trusting authorities, you could say. And that's something for us to celebrate, that there are people that have had that kind of life experience, that they can come wholeheartedly into practice, be open to the teachings, be open to Zazen, can be quite devotional to their teacher quite quickly and can discern, can also discern who to trust and who not to trust. They've got that capacity because of all the past conditions in their own life. And then there are people at the other end of that spectrum who, whose caregivers were not trustworthy. or whose teachers at school, or whose neighbours or relatives were not trustworthy, some of which were not trustworthy. Or they've been raised in a particular political climate where they couldn't trust authorities, couldn't trust government, couldn't trust police, for example. Or maybe they, were, they are a minority in a particular culture that they can't trust authorities within that culture because of the way they are perceived. So there's many ways in which people come into practice who have difficulty around trust for very good reason. And probably many of us are somewhere between those two extremes where we have had some bruising, you could say, some bruising across the course of our life from people who, who we were supposed to trust, be able to trust, and there was some betrayal in some way. So I think we're very lucky that we have a practice where the emphasis is on verification, to verify for ourselves we don't have to have blind faith. We don't even have to make a major leap of faith. There's just a little initial trust we need to have when we first come in, but from then on, we can verify it over and over and over. So then we can be sure for ourselves, ah, this person is trustworthy. These teachings are trustworthy. This practice is trustworthy. And that, that also takes time. The trust uh, becomes stronger over time. And there is a point, I think, for many people where the trust becomes like unshakable. It's an unshakable trust. But it's also kind of relaxed and unshakable. <laughs> like it's not, it's not rigidly unshakable. It's like, yeah, I'm unshakable on this one but it's kind of relaxed. It can be relaxed because it comes from this self-verification, so it doesn't, have to be, it doesn't have to be hard 
doesn't have to be a hard kind of unshakable because there's no need to have a wall of any sort. There's no need for it to be rigid. People can come in and challenge and you can say, that's very interesting and engage with that. But it is a lovely feeling to have a deep trust in the teachings. And as we develop more trust in the teachings, some of the teachings which are not so easy to understand, which are counterintuitive, at face value, they don't feel like they really lead to compassion, they feel like maybe they don't. Those more subtle teachings, when we have enough trust in the teachings, we can really slow down and then we can hear the more subtle teachings. And also, not just some of the teachings are a little counterintuitive. Sometimes some teachers are a little counterintuitive. Not all teachers are easy to, to like or easy to trust because of their style. Some teachers take more time for us to develop a trust in them. And even some of our practices take a little more time. People are often more willing to trust Zazen, to try out Zazen, but a little more kind of untrusting of things like bowing and ceremonies and robes. You know, there's some things that are so, so different to our mainstream culture that they feel um, slightly scary even, slightly dangerous even. And so it takes time to check them out watch them, watch the people doing them, and then slowly but surely go, I think there might be something worthwhile in them. But that takes time too. Uh, I'd like to read Case 86 from the Blue Cliff Record. Yun Men's Kitchen, Pantry and Main Gate. Yun Men imparted some words saying, Everyone has a light. When you look at it, you don't see it and it's dark and dim. What is everybody's light? He himself answered on their behalf, The Kitchen, Pantry and the Main Gate. He also said, a good thing isn't as good as nothing. It's a beautiful case. Yun Man imparted some words saying, everyone has a light. When you look at it, you don't see it and it's dark and dim. What is everybody's light? So the first thing I noticed with this case is that he says, everybody has a light. He doesn't say almost everybody has a light. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't say almost everybody. He says, everybody has a light. That in itself is just a 
teaching to really sit with, could it be true that everybody has a light? If we have a little bit of trust, then we can really sit with that and go, maybe that is true, everybody has a light. And we can keep sitting with it, everybody has a light. And, not, and then say to ourselves, not nearly everybody, everybody. We can say that to ourselves, everybody has a light. We can ask ourselves, what is everybody? Very easy habitually to have a default idea of what everybody is and it's excluding something. So we have to examine very closely, what is everybody? What do the teachings say about everybody? There's lots of different teachings that say quite a lot of different things. And that's because as we develop trust, we can hear the more subtle teachings more easily. So sometimes teachers don't give the most subtle teachings straight away. When they say everybody, they talk about people. Another time a teacher might talk about everybody and talk about people and all sentient beings, animals and insects and so on, fish in the sea. Another teacher might give a, give a talk or might write something and talk about everybody is everything that appears, including the rocks and the rivers. So when we hear different teachings, it's not because there's any disagreement. It's often because teachers are teaching to the level of trust, you could say, in the, the assembly. And Yun-Men also says that this light is hard to see, is dark and dim. And this can be very helpful when we're having trouble seeing the light in someone. We can remind ourselves everybody has the light, but sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes hard to see in ourselves, sometimes hard to see in others. But if we have this developing this trust, we can say it's there, it's just hard to see. And that can help us be more compassionate and more understanding. But then he ends that case by saying, something good is not as good as nothing. Which is, when I first came across this case, that felt quite unusual. It didn't feel like it went with the first part of the case. Why is this line at the end saying, something good is, is not as good as nothing? But just being with it again, this cultivating of trust in the wisdom of these words, what could you men be saying here? What's he conveying to me here? Maybe you could say it's not to get too caught up in the light itself. We can start to turn light into something and then get caught up in that, like, how bright is my light? <laughs> or something. I mean, any number of ways that we can actually get uh, even trapped by a word like light or an idea of Buddha nature. So he just to remind us, he says, something good is, is not as good as nothing. So everybody has a light. But don't get caught even by that.
So as we have this, develop this trust, we can then, we're kind of free. There's a freedom to play with words, to engage with all the appearances in the world, to talk with people, to do things with our body. There's a sort of a freedom we can, we can play without, um, without getting hooked or trapped by anything.